What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. This hour, storm clouds on the horizon from Microsoft. Why investors are bracing for a slowdown in Azure. We'll find out more soon, of course. This dropped call for Verizon. Shares are making a mid-morning turnaround, uh, despite some soft guidance as the Dow goes green. Later, a holding pattern for fintech, the stocks you want to have in your portfolio with the CEO of Plaid, D. Good morning, Carl. Let's take a look at the markets right now. Stocks, as David and Morgan were saying, they they are off their lows, but struggling to build on back-to-back gains. You have the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite slightly in the red. The S&P 500 above that 4,000 level. And the Dow Industrials just poking its head into the green. Earnings season, it is in full swing. It was in full swing this morning with 3M, Verizon, Lockheed, Johnson & Johnson, Union Pacific among the major major names to report. And we did see a number of those names being halted mid-morning due to technical issues at the New York Stock Exchange, John. Yeah, Dee, and we're going to kick off today with Microsoft, the tech giant reporting fiscal second quarter earnings this afternoon. Revenue expected to be about in line with guidance. The stock facing pressure, though, outside of the top line numbers. First, Azure's got an uphill battle. The company expecting 36% growth for its cloud platform, six points lower than the previous quarter. Microsoft also fighting off antitrust scrutiny over its proposed $69 billion Activision Blizzard deal. And they're leaning into artificial intelligence, yesterday announcing a multi-billion dollar investment in OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, not to mention the 10,000 employees they plan to notify of layoffs this quarter. All that being said, street's still pretty bullish with a 17% implied return based on the average price target. Let's bring in Steve Kovac, who's going to be covering this for us tonight. Steve, um, we're about halfway through Microsoft's fiscal year, which means the guide is going to be particularly important, right, into their fiscal Q3. And then maybe even uh, analysts will try to extrapolate what that means for the full year. Especially, That's exactly right, especially because their fiscal year is going to end at the end of June. And CFO Amy Hood said a lot of these headwinds we're about to dive into are going to start to fade after that, especially foreign exchange, which we know has been a real damper on that Azure cloud growth, what they're, they're talk about it on a constant currency basis all the time, but it really is hurting them, not to mention the energy costs it costs to run those data centers. Those have been increasing and making it more costly to run Azure and keep that growth as high as it has been. 36% sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but keep in mind, this thing was growing 48, 50% at one point. Right, and, and its valuation is priced for a certain level. You can kind of take your guess at what that level uh, is, but how exposed is Microsoft to a consumer spending slowdown. There's the PC, Windows group, That's what personal it is. computing. You've got the gaming group as well. But as that perhaps starts to filter through into office, if people get laid off, maybe they're not paying for office, or at least their employer isn't. How much does all of that demand issue, both in the consumer and enterprise side, start to affect them? Yeah, and, and I want to go back to almost a year ago. Microsoft was the first one to flag these warning signs. Hey, the PC market is falling off a cliff. The demand is just no longer there, and they're still saying it. There's no sign that it's going to flip back around. 
everyone bought, we talk about this all the time, everyone bought ahead during the pandemic. Companies too, IT spend went through the roof as people were working from home. And now, if, like you said, IT spend is expected to grow this year, but much more moderately than we've seen in the past few years. That's what's hurting them too. And then to your point, just on the regular consumer side, not buying as many PCs and that hurts mm -hmm. Windows. And the other side of this, I'm particularly interested in what is Microsoft guys going to say about cloud, right? It's the first of the hyperscalers to report. And this is typically the metric, Azure growth and the Azure forecast that investors zero in on. John, we've talked a lot about this. Are, is the slowdown going to be worse than expected? We know that Microsoft's numbers are higher than AWS because it comes from a lower base. But do you think that's been baked in, John? Where, where are we in terms of expectations, do you think? Uh, I'll defer to Steve on this one. I mean, it's one thing to talk about uh, a growth slowdown, but when Microsoft is priced, we're expecting growth in cloud. Oh, big of time. Course. And, and it's significant it's, growth. Let's be clear about that. It's more than 20%. Right, this right? is huge. But if the street is expecting, say, you know, 35, 40%, and they come right. out with 30, 35, well, it's still a nice growth number, but not what the stock was trading based on. And no, that's where you end up. Right. They, they would have to, I mean, in past years, during the pandemic and even pre-pandemic, they would have to knock that number out of the park for the stock to go up on earnings. Now they've, I mean, they've done a pretty good job at moderating expectations. Last quarter, they said it's going to be a several percentage points lower than it typically is. Get ready, guys. Buckle up. We're seeing the same uh, trends across, across our IT spend that everyone else is seeing. That is, that's what, yeah. it's, it's, it's going to keep growing. I just want to be clear, it's going to keep growing, but it's definitely moderated. Now, right. if you talk to Satya Nadella about this, Deirdre, he would say, look, we have a long runway here. Even if the growth slows, it's going to come yeah. back. But he also says things like he's very cautious and there's maybe two more years of pain for the sector to come. In terms of that read through, we look to Azure to kind of see what AWS may be. But these are different um, propositions, right, Steve, because AWS is focused more maybe on startups and tech. Do we think that Microsoft's enterprise customers could maybe lift its numbers a little better than, say, Google and AWS? Yeah, that's what they rely on the most. It, it, and that's a really good question. It's, it is is that IT spend going to remain? And that's what I'm going to be listening to from CFO Amy Hood, because she has such a good read on this, and she's really good at being straightforward and saying, this is what we're hearing from our clients. This is what we're seeing in IT spend. And I'm going to be hanging on, and as everyone else should, hang on every word she says related to that IT spend, because that's just going to give us a read on how businesses, and especially those small and medium businesses, are doing. That's their bread and butter. Not the, Those big clients are going to continue to spend, but it's the small and medium businesses. When they start to cut, that's when you got to worry. Yeah, I expect to see some impact on LinkedIn, too, both on the ad side yeah. and on, hey, people aren't hiring like they used to, exactly. which means fewer dollars there. Steve, thank you. Thanks. Steve Kovac. Carl? Guys, let's get you an update on some of the stock halts that we saw earlier this morning here at the NYSC. Got a couple of statements. We'll turn to Bob Bassani. Bob? And uh, we do have an update from the New York Stock Exchange. A little more information. Uh, let me read it to you. The exchange continues to investigate issues with today's opening auction. In a subset of symbols, opening auctions did not occur. The exchange is working to clarify the list of symbols. Impacted member firms may consider filing for clearly erroneous or Rule 18 claims. Let me explain that, what rule, uh, clearly erroneous means. Remember, every day, stocks open down here at the New York Stock Exchange, roughly 930. It's one price. So what happens is everybody puts in orders to buy and sell. Some of them are market orders. Some of them are limit orders. But they put in a price. And based on that aggregate, they build a book. 
and they determine what the opening price is based on the orders to buy and sell. For whatever reason, it is not clear, but many of the orders to buy and sell that normally go into the book to determining the opening price did not get into the book. As a result, many stocks open with very low volume and somewhat crazy prices. I'll give you an example here. Mosaic, for example, a big materials company, uh, opened uh, at $40.29. It closed at $48.35 yesterday. So there's a, a rather crazy number, closing at 48 and opening at 40. It was halted immediately. As you can see, it's back to close to where it was uh, yesterday. And this has happened in reverse, too. Walmart, for example, closed at $142.64 yesterday. And it opened at $159.80, and it, too, was halted. There's a limit up, limit down uh, requirement that, it was, that you can't trade in certain bands, outside of certain bands. Uh, it was halted, and then reopened. It opened right around where it was yesterday, at 142 uh, and change. So here's there's, there's two issues. Number one, are these opening quotes erroneous? In other words, are they not representative of what the market action should be? And the NYSE essentially declares them null and void, and then you decide where's the opening price usually back when it opened after the limit up, limit down. That's the first issue they have to determine. That's a bit of a nightmare because there's obviously several dozen big names here, but it may be the only reasonable thing that they can do at this point. The second issue is what exactly happened. We don't know. The NYC has not told us. However, in the past, these kinds of technical problems have been associated with software upgrades or security upgrades that have occurred. Again, we do not know, but that has occurred uh, in the past. I can assure you there's a lot of software people uh, that are uh, around the NYC right now trying to figure out exactly what happened. Carl? All right, Bob. Uh, we'll get to you uh, as we learn more. Uh, Bob Bassani this morning. Interesting morning. Uh, while it may seem like tech in the meantime is the best performing sector this year, it's actually communication services went from being the worst performer last year to being up 12% so far in 23. Some signs are starting to show that it may be overbought. Sector is the farthest above the 50-day moving average with 84% of uh, sector stocks above that trend line and includes names like Netflix and Alphabet, which have seen rallies, as you know. Joining us this morning, CNBC contributor Todd Gordon of New Age Wealth Advisors joined us talk about this action, Todd. Um, we've heard a lot of things about the beginning of the year, low quality start to the year, uh, interesting short covering element. Do you think it's overbought? Uh, communications, Carl. Hey, how you doing this morning? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, they've been uh, significantly out of favor. And one of the key themes that we're seeing here in the early goings of 23 is a rotation back into communications from a very, a very low starting point in a rotation out of energy, right? So as you said, they're coming up against the 200-day moving average and so much of this market, not just communications, but the NASDAQ and the S&P, they're just, it's facing just a wall of, of key technical, highly visible resistance. So um, I think uh, if you look at the components, what's actually making communications uh, rotate in right now, it, early on it's been uh, mobile and fixed telecom, but some of the other more high beta-ish parts of, me, of uh, communications like internet, broadcasting, entertainment, they're just starting to get going. And we just saw Microsoft try to make a run, got stuffed. Google, all of a sudden, is making a pretty big run. So I say it's still early. Right. You think the money continues to come from energy? There's some chatter today that maybe uh, uh, output remains unchanged at the meeting next week. Uh, some of the earnings out of industrials today, maybe not that scintillating. I wonder what's going to keep that flow moving. 
Yeah, I, I think I think more of it has to do with visibility on where rates are going. I mean, we've we've had the market come in valuations. The market's been repriced. I do think we have some visibility on long term inflation, where the Fed's going to go. And we're seeing a rotation into into growth. And it's really the entire value trade is starting to come off. I'm not declaring the, the rotation over, but healthcare, industrials, energy, utilities, even some real estate is coming off uh, in tech. I mean, look at, look at the move in semis yesterday. Semis, we're talking about all these technical levels in communications and the NASDAQ. Semis just broke everything. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're going to give a little bit of the, the growth trade a, a go here. So, Todd, as you say, the market has been repriced, but I guess the key question, is it the right repricing? Do we need to go back to the start of the pandemic or further back at a time when interest rates were higher? What is your thesis sort of based on the Fed is going to do this year? Yeah, it's, you know, the Fed is, is trying to club us over the head with, with higher for longer. You know, is, is federal funds going to get a five handle, as, as uh, Chair Powell is saying, uh, consistently? But if you look at you know, where we are in the next two to three meetings in the back half of 23, it says not only do we not have a five handle, but we're down in four and a quarter, four and a half, maybe even a rate cut. Uh, I think we're going to start to see that translate in CPI prints. And I, I think, you, you know, I, I do think if you look at the real yield curve, I, I think if everyone's caught up in, in nominal looking at this inverted yield curve, probably 70, 80 uh, basis points of inversion. But if you look at real rates, we still do have somewhat of a normally shaped yield curve. And, and I, you know, I think that uh, earnings, I don't think are going to be as bad as we think. You know, I think um, Microsoft was viewed to have a significant cloud slowdown. Uh, UBS came out with a report uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that implementation of the second gen of big cloud was going to be uh, very sticky and, and they might not have as much success in kind of the first generation. That's been pulled back. You look at some of the tech names talking about uh, over buildup in, in uh, inventories. The chips are rallying now in response to perhaps inventories aren't as stocked up as, as we were led to believe. So <laughs> perhaps earnings out of growth, it isn't going to be all that, aren't going to be that all bad. Yeah, uh, let's talk one more bit about Microsoft. Today, the, the Morgan Stanley desk says, ever since Nadella came out and talked about those two difficult years in tech that are on the way, we've had pretty good commentary out of Davos from firms like ServiceNow uh, and Palo Alto Networks. Uh, yep. Toma Bravo said its portfolio and calendar of Q4, not too bad. Possible that Microsoft caution was posturing ahead of the reduction in force. Do you think that's true? Um, I, I, I do think Microsoft uh, has it tried to make a go here in, in, uh, in, in the first week of January, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, to do about this new chat GBT, putting Google under pressure. Um, I think the cloud slowdown might be a little uh, overdone, but I think the, the, uh, the lead that Microsoft took in the beginning, I think, is being reeled back here a little bit. I mean, Microsoft, I think, controls about 20 percent of cloud market share. Um, you know, it, it, if you want to compare against, let's say, Amazon, you know, Amazon's um, kind of concerns and woes have been extrapolated into Microsoft and cloud. But Amazon's got their own issues, right? Sure. So I, I think, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I, I think Google is symbolic of this growth trade coming back on. Microsoft tried to make it go. Might not be as bad as we think in terms of cloud numbers, but Google is, I think, where we want to be focusing as this comms is, is rotating back in. Oh, we we'll look forward to a little more clarity uh, later on today. Todd, appreciate it very much. Thanks.
Thanks, guys. After the break, despite Bitcoin's rally, Mizuho reiterating its bear case for Coinbase. Is the risk on rally we're seeing about to fade? Plus, what Verizon's earnings can tell us about what might be ahead for AT&T and T-Mobile next week. And then Ticketmaster parent Live Nation will take questions from lawmakers after the meltdown that occurred during the sale of Taylor Swift tickets. Just can't shake it off. Antitrust concerns in focus. Tech Check is just getting started. Ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Tech Check. Take a look at Coinbase, up more than 50% to start 2023, partially because of the risk on trade, partially a result of Bitcoin's recent rally. But our next guest says, don't believe the hype, predicting headwinds on the horizon with retail investors still hesitant to jump back into crypto. Let's bring in Mizuho Managing Director Dan Dolev. He joins with an underperformed rating price target of 30 bucks. Dan, um, so Coinbase is up near 55 now. It was at 33 three weeks ago. Is crypto the whole reason why you don't like this? Uh, wh why do you like Robinhood, which has also had a run higher and uh, probably lower transactions ahead? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for a great to be on the show again. I, I think what we're saying here, you know, we, we you know, obviously I love Robinhood. And, and remember, crypto is only a very small fraction of Robinhood's revenue. They're much more diversified. They've got equities, they've got options. Um, they're getting into uh, retirement. It's a much bigger, more diversified platform. The problem with Coinbase, and this is the survey work that we did today, it shows you that if you did not trade in December during the winter, 90% chance you didn't trade in January. Even if you traded in December, 30% chance you've left, which means that there's really no retail appetite for crypto trading. Remember, they make 50 to 100 times more take rate or yield or profits on a retail trader versus institutional. I think it's going to be a rough awakening when people see the revenue uh, and they'll see just how much down the take rate or the yield has come for Coinbase. Uh, how much of that, though, is just momentary? I mean, it, retail investors are piling into Tesla which had been sort of trading in tandem with a lot of crypto assets. Uh, we've seen this risk on trade really booming in general over the past few days and weeks. Maybe crypto gets popular again once people uh, think that there's something to be had there. Yeah, I would actually, I, I think Tesla is a great example here because it's sort of the ultimate, the quintessential retail trade. There's a real product behind Tesla, right? There's a car, it's beautiful, it's shiny. Um, there's nothing here. Right. At the end of the day, what, what are we dealing with? I mean, Jamie Dimon called it Petrox, right? You're basically trading non-productive assets 
uh, including Bitcoin. There's really no utility to any of these. So I think that there's right now it might seem as sort of an, an interesting peg on Tesla and everything moves in the same direction. I expect a bifurcation over time, especially when people's wallets and you've seen all these layoffs huh. become a little smaller. They'll make a decision on, do, do I really want to invest in these cryptocurrencies? Well, speaking of people's wallets in general, uh, MasterCard and Visa are reporting pretty soon. Um, the savings rates coming down, their estimates that uh, people are taking on a whole lot of credit card debt. Uh, what, what kind of numbers do you expect to see, to hear about on delinquencies and late payments throughout the ecosystem uh, this quarter? And how is this going to affect the stocks? Yeah, so Visa and MasterCard, I mean, they they, they don't really get affected by delinquencies right now. I think that, that everyone that, that is bullish on these names, I mean, we're bullish on MasterCard, a little more on the sidelines on Visa, is bullish on pretty much the same thesis, which is the China reopening. Uh, what you mentioned on delinquencies, that's more relevant for like a SoFi or an Affirm, but it's a very important point because as those continue to rise, I think what you'll see is an initial, you know, excitement about the fact that things are still good. And then there'll be that sort of, you know, oh, you know, you know, moment that that you would see that people would say, hey, what, what are we actually dealing with? A slowing economy, slowing spend, rising delinquencies. So I, I think this is more like a year of two parts. And I don't expect this rallying the stocks to to linger for, a, uh, you know, a reasonable, more reasonable time. OK, but I guess they probably do need that consumer to keep spending one way or another. Dan, thank you. Coming up after the break, Verizon with results today. Guidance coming in a bit soft, but we did have a turnaround to the upside. Stocks uh, positive right now. And that's ahead of AT&T tomorrow and Timo next week. We're going to dig into those numbers. Get a check on the markets this morning as we're circulating right around 40.15 or so with the Dow roughly flat. Be right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Shares of Verizon are higher this morning, despite its outlook coming up a bit short of expectations. Our Julia Borston's with us and has more on their quarter. Uh, what Hans Vestberg said today and what it might mean for competitors later this week, JB. Well, Carl, Verizon shares were lower earlier. Now they're up about 1%. Now, full-year guidance came in below analyst consensus, but earnings were right in line with expectations, and revenue of $35.3 billion was a hair stronger than anticipated. Verizon's consumer wireless business added 41,000 postpaid phone subscribers. That was lower than anticipated, but still notable growth after the company lost hundreds of thousands of subscribers in the prior two quarters. Now, Verizon has lost market share to T-Mobile and AT&T over the past couple of years amid price wars. But CEO Hans Vestberg says, says they will be surgical around specific segmented price hikes. Then we had a year last year where 
actually I was disappointed over the second quarter, really disappointed. We didn't perform. Uh, took a lot of actions in the third quarter, started seeing some of improvements in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, especially on the consumer business, we saw improvements, we saw momentum, and that's what we're coming into in 23. So there's a lot of things to do. It's a very uh, competitive market. Verizon has far underperformed its competitors in the past year. Take a look at this 12-month stock chart. It's down about 26%, while T-Mobile has gained 35 or 36%. AT&T over that time period down about 3%. So we will be hearing from AT&T tomorrow morning when they report their earnings, and then T-Mobile reports a week from tomorrow. Deirdre? Yeah, Julia Borson, thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Shares of Uber, take a look. They're moving lower today. The company's freight division announcing that it will lay off 3% of its workforce. That's about 150 employees. The head of the division writing to employees, we accelerated hiring last year within certain areas of our brokerage business, planning for a different economic reality, but the volumes did not materialize as expected. Now, if those words sound familiar, it's because they might be. Senator Pichai of Alphabet used the exact same phrasing, different economic reality just last week. And while this is a small amount relative to its more than 30,000 global workforce, this is the first round of layoffs since the pandemic. CEO Darwak Hazra Shahi saying last week at Davos that he wasn't planning any company-wide layoffs, John. We're going to hear more obviously from the company when it reports on February 8th. But of course, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, part of this unprofitable gig economy that really do need to get those costs under control, you could argue more so than some of the other companies that have made cuts. Yeah, I would argue that Shopify and Snap, long before Sundar Pichai, were, uh, were developing that line about uh, they planning, <laughs> planning, pl yeah, planning for a different economic reality than materialized, spending at a certain rate, you know, Shopify, uh, Spotify even, uh, just this week, saying much the same thing, and then boom, the, the brakes got hit on the top line, but that bottom line has a way of sticking around. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, for the employees, that has become a very popular phrase, and maybe providing cover for, for CEOs to follow. Later this hour, fintech company Plaid counts PayPal, Shopify, Google, and others as customers. CEO Zach Perret will join us to talk about regulation in the space, competition from big banks, plus the ability of private companies to raise money in this tough macro environment. Don't go away. Welcome back. Two hours into trading, let's get a check on the markets. Stocks have just about clawed their way back to break even on the major indices after a very weak opening. S&P holding on to that 4,000 level. Eh just by its fingernails. Some of your movers at this hour. 3M, the worst performer on the S&P after cutting its guidance. AMD shares falling after Bernstein downgraded the stock to market perform, citing, uh, worsening PC market trends. We're just talking about that with Microsoft. Despite that move lower, the semi-ETF, SMH, now on pace for the best start to the year since 2001. And want to call your attention to some news coming out of Walmart just now. The retailer saying it's going to raise the minimum wage to $14 an hour for store employees. Now let's get to Bertha Coombs for a news update. Bertha. Hey, John. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Biden administration appears to be dropping its opposition to sending Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine. That, according to multiple reports, Reuters reporting an announcement could come as early as this week. Meantime, the U.S. shift is coming at the same time that Germany appears to be ready to allow its Leopard 2 tanks to be shipped to Ukraine. 
Bloomberg reporting Germany will give Poland approval to send some of its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine later this week. And American skier Michaela Schifrin has broken the women's record for World Cup wins. Her 83rd victory put her above the mark set by Lindsey Vaughn. Schifrin is now just three wins short of the overall record set by Denmark's Ingemar Stenmark in the 1970s and 80s. Those women are fast. Carl? Uh, people counted her out after the last Olympics. Uh, not a good move, uh, Bertha. Thank you, Bertha Coombs. Uh, let's zoom in on Tech M&A this morning. Last year, tech deals, as you know, slowed down in the back half with the first six months accounting for nearly three quarters of activity for the year. Our next guest says to expect some movement soon, though, especially in enterprise software. In fact, just yesterday, the information reported that Vista Partners and Toma Bravo may be looking to scoop up data analytics firm Sumo Logic. Stock has fallen nearly 75% from the highs back in 21, and Toma Bravo raised more than $32 billion from buyout funds just last month. Joining us from the NYSE today, Guggenheim Security Senior Managing Director Eric Mandel, the perfect person to talk to about this. Great to see you, Eric. Thanks it, for coming in. It's great to be here, Carl. Uh, um, Thank you. I had to. You had to notice what Toma Bravo told Barron's over the weekend uh, on the on the outlook. It's not that bad. I feared the fourth quarter was going to be surprisingly bad, and it was not. Is that instructive for the year? Yeah, I think that's a great way to start this conversation. We, we're experiencing everything being front-loaded. We saw demand front-loaded during COVID, and now stress around earnings, a potential recession, is so worked into everybody's psyche that it actually is healthy to see that. And, and I think, you know, to zero in on private equity in particular, they're very, very good at having a beat on where the puck is going. So anecdotal, we had a board meeting this weekend with a client and it's related to private equity. The key question everybody used to ask a year ago, two years ago at the height of the pandemic is, how quickly can you grow? How fast can you grow your ARR? And what do you need to do it? There's been a total 180. It's what's your unlevered free cash flow? How sustainable is it? And God forbid, if there's economic pullback, how do you manage that? So uh, the, the Toma Bravos, the Vistas, the CDNRs, the KKRs, they all have a beat on that probably better than anybody. And a, a sidebar, an interesting statistic, if you were to combine all of the portfolio companies that the big PE folks own, you'd have one of the biggest software companies on earth. So they, they, know, they know their stuff. Yes. What, what is special about software then, assuming this year uh, is, is going to give us a positive, some positive direction? Yeah, I think great question. So, you know, we hear this from clients and clients are obviously split between folks that want to buy things and folks that want to sell themselves. And the folks that want to buy things are PE and corporates. I can't remember a time where everybody's focused on the same thing. You usually have some diametrically opposed opinions. Um, I'd say there are three fundamental thoughts that are flowing through everybody's mind. Number one, what's your unlevered free cash flow? It's, it's number one. Sure. I mean, and, and that is, that's a sizable shift from a year or two ago. But number two is, what is your demonstrable total addressable market? So can you actually say, I'm going to grow faster than infrastructure as a service or PaaS holistically? And the reason that's so important is if someone says, oh, you know, hybrid cloud's growing at 25% next year, that's not good enough anymore. You need to grow faster than that and you need to be able to beat it. But the last bit, which kind of flows through every conversation we've been having is something called rule of 40. You've talked a lot about it on the show. Um, simply defined, rule of 40 is 
taking your top line growth rate, adding your free cash flow margin, and that number needs to be more than 40. Now, sounds simplistic, right? The arithmetic is, but a year ago, two years ago, rule of 40 really meant 40% growth (laughs) (laughs) and just breaking through cash flow flow break-even. Now, we've actually inverted. So boards are hyper-focused on understanding how do you get rule of 40 to be more like 30% margin and 10% growth. And of course, private equity firms need to be laser-focused on understanding that their current portfolios are able to generate free cash flow, but that they're identifying assets to buy that can do that as well. So to what degree then is macro a risk? Um, Or or maybe, as some argue, IT intensity is getting so strong within a weaker macro that it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, great, great, great point as well. I'm probably more optimistic than most. And by the way, I think a lot of CEOs, CFOs, board members are also very optimistic. It's just no one wants to front run how they're going to perform, especially if they're a public company. That's very understandable. But at least what we're seeing on the M&A side is this feels a little bit like 2018. If you remember, like 09 to 17 was an amazing bull run, and 18 was like, oh, my God, the <laughs> S&P corrected. Yeah. How is this possible? Some of the biggest deals ever were done between 18 and 19. We sold Red Hat to IBM. It was a $34 billion deal. There were a number of massive transactions And the reason for that is buyers, whether they're PE or corporate, actually feel a little more comfortable if valuation comes down to the mean, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, believe me, a lot of investors would love to have a repeat of 18. uh, (laughs) But we will see how much lines up. Uh, You know, things don't necessarily rhyme exactly. Great conversation, Eric. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be Uh, here. Thank you. John? Yeah, call coming up after the break. Amazon adding prescription perks, generic prescriptions for Prime members as big tech continues to push into healthcare. Plus, speaking of retailers, check out shares of Target. Oppenheimer initiates at buy this morning while Lululemon gets a downgrade from Bernstein. You can read more about those calls on cnbc.com pro. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Time now for a gut check. Amazon continuing its push into healthcare with a new prescription drug perk. The service known as RX Pass is going to be available for Prime members in the U.S., giving subscribers access to 50 generic medications for treating chronic conditions. The deal costs five bucks a month with free delivery. Worth noting here, though, people with Medicaid or Medicare are ineligible for RX Pass, and it doesn't offer insulin or specialty medications. Let's bring in CNBC's Bertha Coombs, who covers healthcare for us. Bertha, how does this build on that pill pack acquisition from about five years ago and then these one medical uh, ambitions that Amazon's got? Well, you know, if we were talking about a football game, this is kind of getting a field goal to get some points on the board. Amazon really just hasn't gotten that much traction with Amazon Pharmacy. This is a very attractive deal because it's not just one medication that you could get for $5 a month. You could get a bunch of them. So you could get, if you were on a heart medication, if you were on uh, an antidepressant and maybe also a hypertension medication, you could get all three of them for just $5 a month. That is a huge perk that might entice people to go ahead and use the pharmacy. Okay. You're also seeing some of their competitors lower this morning, John, because if it works, then you're going to see maybe a bit of a price war when it comes to these generics, which at this point don't really help with 
regard to margin. So is this a loss leader for customer acquisition? That's what it looks like to me, that it would be a loss leader to get those customers and then to get that touchdown, if you will, once they get the one medical deal. Now you've got an ecosystem where you can really feed into the pharmacy, get more people who might be going into one medical thinking about that, more doctors prescribing, you get that virtuous circle. Hmm. But right now, it's a little bit of a one-off, but it's it's a big shot across the bow. So maybe what we're seeing with Amazon's investment in healthcare, where they've already made this commitment on One Medical recently, similar to what we see with Microsoft in gaming, Uh, And in AI, they're going to continue doubling down on certain investments, even if they cost them in this difficult economic environment, but they're just going to be choosy about what they spend on. Well, you know, it's it's hard to ignore when you're talking about 17, 18 percent of the U.S. economy. Healthcare is big business and everybody wants to get their stake. Most of the tech companies just haven't really been able to break through those healthcare silos. Amazon is hoping by having a player like a One Medical and now with a pharmacy that they can really get some traction. Tough nut, but if you can crack it, there's a lot of meat in there. Uh, Bertha, thank you. Dee? John, thanks. Uh, Let's talk Plaid. It lets consumers connect their bank accounts to apps in a matter of seconds, and it was part of the class of fintech darlings over the last few years that attracted a bid from Visa that was ultimately shot down by regulators, and it went on to raise money at a more than $13 billion valuation. Like its peers, though, it is facing tougher comps in a weakening macro environment, more competition. Despite the sell-off, though, Plaid predicts the shift to digital finance will not revert back. And specifically in the digital wallet space, it will be a race between fintech, big banks, large tech, and retail brands. Joining me now, Plaid founder and CEO Zach Prey and our own Kate Rooney um, to ask some questions here. Zach, so if it is this race, who wins it? We've been covering the big bank earnings and some recent stumbles in consumer fintech. Um, how does this roll out over the next few, few years? And don't say everyone can win. <laughs> uh, well, first, th- thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, over the past uh, year, we've seen a major shift in the way that digital finances started to play out, the way that um, many of the companies have, have grown. Um, one, one thing that we've seen is there's definitely been a slowdown on the startup side. There's a slowdown in funding. That means there's a slowdown in new marketing spend, new user acquisition from many of the, uh, many of the fintech companies. Um, that said, um, we've seen many of the big banks and many of the large technology companies actually step in and start to launch digital financial products. Um, one of the things that we have at Plaid is that um, the banks themselves, they're the biggest fintech companies. Uh, it's just a question of how fast they're going to do the technology side. And how um, well. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but um, we've actually been really impressed by um, the pace of much of the innovation that the, the big banks are building. And um, you've, of course, seen all the headlines of all the large technology companies stepping in and launching, uh, launching new financial products. So when we look at fintech, uh, it is growing. It's just going in a different way this year. So is that your way of saying that everyone can win? But, you know, you guys say that it is a race. There's always a winner in a race. Who, I guess, is best positioned over the next few years? Yes, the big banks have been making bigger steps in this space, but not always to success. We talked about the billions of dollars at Marcus, J.P. Morgan's acquisition of Frank, um, who, between these four groups that you guys identified, fintech, big banks, big tech, retail, who's best positioned right now? Uh, this is a great question. Um, uh, what we're starting to see is that um, the big banks are, yes, building great products. And yes, they have stumbles along the way. But you see this everywhere that you look. You see the startups are stumbling. Uh, you see that uh, non-banks, when they're building digital financial products, are stumbling. Um, that said, uh, the up and to the right trend is, is certainly really great. Um, when we look at the big banks, of course, very impressed by the ability for them to distribute products very well to consumers uh, directly. Um, of course, they have long histories in, in many of these areas. When we look at the fintechs, um, we're actually seeing many of them start to shift their product mix 
dynamics shift the types of products that they're building. Historically, they've been very focused on checking accounts, saving accounts, card issuing. Now they're starting to build in lending products. They're starting to build high-yield high uh, savings products. And these are just different things. And it's going to take a little while for many of the fintechs to retool their product set to fit with a new market. It's been interesting to see sort of the fallout after Marcus and uh, what Goldman Sachs has done and sort of these fintechs and banks meeting in the middle. I wonder, too, about the, the pull-forward effect that we saw with fintech and digital commerce during the pandemic. Shopify, for example, had said you know, it's five to ten years in terms of a pull forward. And then Toby Luke said, actually, never mind. We overestimated that. Where are we sort of post-pandemic, now that things are reopened, where did we settle on what happened to digital commerce in the last two or three years now? You know, when we talked to many of the financial players that were out there, um, they told us that they were pulling forward their roadmap two or three years. And actually, I did see them pulling forward many of the projects that they were trying to fund, many of the projects they were trying to build. Um, one of the big shifts that we've seen is consumers went much more digital during the pandemic with their, with their financial life. Instead of walking to a bank branch, you wanted to use a digital financial product um, uh, because you didn't feel comfortable walking to the bank branch. Um, some of that has reverted, but what, what I'll say is that we've seen more than 80% of consumers um, use at least one fintech product uh, on a week-to-week -week or a month-to-month -month basis. Um, and that is sticking around. Consumers are not going back to a world in which they have to walk in and talk to a teller every time they want to do something in their financial life. And um, it's unlikely that someone is going to print out that you know few hundred pages of documentation when right. they apply for a mortgage. They want to do it digitally. So digital is here to stay. Um, uh, but the form factor will continue to shift over time. I wonder about ACH as well. That's an area we've seen really take off, sort of that direct ability to pay directly out of your bank account. If that starts to take off, what is going to happen to the visas, the MasterCards of the world, Will the fees get compressed on the merchant side? There's been a lot of people that are upset that they have to pay so much in credit card processing fees. Do you expect that to hit the credit card companies and the, the networks of the world? You know, I can't comment on Visa and MasterCard specifically. Um, however, um, one thing that I am excited for is the increasing diversity of payments products that are available out there. Obviously, you've seen the rise of many, many of the wallets. Um, we're tracking very closely um, the emergence of, of, of a product called FedNow, which is the Federal Reserve actually building a faster way to do ACH, a faster way to do bank-linked payments. And of course, there's a competing standard by the Clearinghouse, which is called RTP. Um, I think all of these things are great for consumers. Consumers want to move money faster. They want to move it more easily. Um, they want the money to land when they, when they say that they're going to send it. Um, and as we continue to push the ball forward in technology here, I think that's amazing for consumers. It, it can be great for merchants, too. Uh, they can save millions, if not billions, of dollars in fees by directing their consumers right, to ACH. I want to ask you, though, um, Kate and I were talking about this yesterday, that fintech and big banks, they've been partners, then kind of frenemies. Wondering where does it stand right now? There was an article yesterday in the journal talking about the big banks creating a digital wallet and in a way to take back their customers from the middleman. Plaid is kind of the ultimate middleman connecting the big banks with the consumer. How does that play out for your business? So for us, we're pro-innovation. We're excited for people to build new financial products. And I'm a big believer that the more products that a consumer has available to them, uh, the more options they have, the better their financial life is going to be. And that's the foundation. That's why we started building Plaid. We wanted to help consumers live better financial lives. Um, this, this new wallet that came out, and I don't know all the details. I don't think any of us knew all the details yet. Um, but what I'll say is we've seen the emergence of wallets come from all sorts of places. We've seen retailers want to build uh, wallets and issue their own cards. We've seen uh, many of the large technology companies want to build their own wallets. Um, you've seen this with Apple and Google, of course. Um, and I think that that's amazing. That's a great thing. Consumers have more options available to them. Um, I suspect, by the way, this wallet trend is going to continue. There's going right. to be way more before there are less. Yeah, it does seem like a race. And finally, Zach, with just a minute left with you, um, have you, how are you guys thinking about your valuation? Uh, you had that deal with 
visa that didn't go through, and then you guys raised it more than $13 billion. Your comps in the public market have come down a lot since then. Have you revised your internal valuation, or are you thinking about raising more money at a different valuation, it would seem? Yeah, as, as a private company, um, uh, we don't comment on evaluation all that much. And, Many um, are, though, private uh, well, companies. <laughs> um, fair enough. But we, 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 we choose not to, and um, uh, we have no immediate plans to, to raise additional capital. We're fortunate that um, we're in a market that continues to grow. I think the long-term trend of digitizing financial services, that is only going in one direction. Um, and we couldn't be more excited for the years ahead. So um, we, feel, we feel confident about the position that we're in right now and are excited for the, the upcoming few years. Well, Zach, thank you. Kate Rooney, thanks for being with us. Um, and if you want more fintech, we're actually going to continue this discussion. There's lots more to talk about on our Tech Check Plus live stream. That's kicking off at 1230 Eastern, 930 here on the West Coast. Both Zach and Kate will be joining me. Send in your questions. Join us on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Carl? All right, D, still to come, uh, bad blood between Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster. Live Nation facing the Senate Judiciary Committee today after mishandling those ticket sales. That story's coming up. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Ticketmaster owner Live Nation facing questions from lawmakers today after that outrage over Taylor Swift ticket sales. Congress focusing on whether Live Nation is violating antitrust rules. Our Julia Borson is back with us and has details. Julia. Well, Carl, the hearing is going on right now, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are taking aim at Live Nation and its Ticketmaster division, arguing that its combination of both venue and ticketing disadvantages consumers and artists. Senator Amy Klobuchar arguing to break the company up. This is all a definition of monopoly because Live Nation is so powerful that it doesn't even need to exert pressure. It doesn't need to threaten because people just fall in line. Live Nation's president and CFO defending the company, saying that the company helps artists. He blames scalpers and bots for the ticketing issues that plagued Taylor Swift fans. While the bots fail to penetrate our systems or acquire any tickets, the attack requires to slow down and even pause our sales. This is what led to a terrible consumer experience, which we deeply regret. We apologize to the fans. We apologize to Ms. Swift. We need to do better, and we will do better. There are also some other industry players testifying, the CEO of SeatGeek, a concert promoter, and also a musical artist, many of them questioning Live Nation's compliance with its consent decree that banned it from retaliating against concert venues for using other ticketing companies. So one thing's for sure here, guys, there's a lot of disagreement. Live Nation is defending its approach, but everyone agrees that Taylor Swift it's amazing. <laughs> uh, because uh, you're in trouble if you don't agree with that in, yeah. in the music business, it seems. <laughs> Julia, th this reminds me of the Amazon situation with third-party retailers and with e-commerce, where Amazon says, hey, yeah, we, we got power, but we're not a monopoly. Look at all these other options that people have. Right now in the music business, it seems like most artists make practically nothing off of streaming. They have to rely on live shows to make money. So how important is the resolution of this issue between, you know, should Ticketmaster and Live Nation be together? How important is it to the whole music e ecosystem, including digital? 
Well, it's very important. I mean, it is separate from the streaming business, say Spotify, which is a company that we've been talking about with its reorganization um, and, and the fact that we're going to be hearing from Spotify's earnings coming up. But I think it's really important here to talk about the fact that this is a company, Live Nation and Ticketmaster, that merged in 2009. They have faced antitrust concerns before, and that's why they're complying with its consent decree. The question is whether there needs to be more action to you know, really protect consumers and artists. But Live Nation is saying, hey, we've helped so many artists. Look at the numbers. Look at the percentage of touring groups that we've helped because of our platforms. So they're saying that things have gotten more competitive, but a little bit of he said, she said, and certainly interesting to hear the conversation, especially the comments I have to say from the musical artists have been pretty interesting. Meantime on your beat, Julia, we talked about the Spotify layoffs yesterday. We got Live Nation today. A couple of calls this morning about our parent Comcast, uh, ongoing troubles or pressures in the macro environment. And then this Wells note on Disney saying that whatever Iger does this quarter, it's going to be coming out swinging. Oh, yeah, we're looking for some changes to come from Disney. We heard from Iger that he's working on a restructuring. So we'll be watching for that when the company reports in a couple of weeks. I'll watch it closely. Obviously, a very consequential day with all the uh, industrial earnings, some of the weird price action guys that we got at the open here at the NYSE, but we're told uh, things are back to normal. And of course, everybody waiting to see what the guidance is going to look like from uh, Mr. Softy tonight. Let's get to the judge and a half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more.